You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the first time in at least 55 years, a Chinese tradition to mark the new year won't look and sound like it has in years past. Take a listen. Those were sounds of teams of lion dancers going store-to-store in Chinatown here on Oahu. We were there last February on River Street. Chinese societies who helped organize the youth who keep the tradition of chasing evil spirits away in advance of the lunar year are scaling back activities to discourage crowds as we are still battling the spread of COVID-19. We reached out to Shulan Schubert Kwok president of the Chinatown Community and Business Association. She walked Chinatown Friday afternoon just before talking with us about how businesses have tempered their expectations for what would be a noisy and festive season to usher in great wealth and good health. For this year in Chinatown, we are not having any Choi Cheng, which is usually the the week before our Chinese New Year, we would have Chinatown closed down from 5 o'clock to like 10 o'clock at night for lions to roam all over Chinatown. And lots of people come out, lots of society halls are open, and then lots of firecrackers. And then they then go down to Chinese Culture Plaza, there's an event there. And then the following week, there would be like the night in Chinatown, a Chinatown parade. So it's very festive and lots of goodies to buy. But this year... It's kind of quiet. We don't have any of that. Even festive things are very few because people are not stocking up for sale. I checked on Narcissus bulb. Nobody had any. And last year, I found some, but very scraggly ones. And they're not the nice ones. And apparently, they're not coming out from Hong Kong or China and not much from the mainland. So nobody's selling them. But however, they do have those Chinese New Year floral, like sprigs, like they are the sakura which is uh, called muifa or, or uh, in Chinese, which is they have them and they kind of bloom for like three, four weeks. And then they also have pussy willows. Uh, those are Chinese cut flowers for New Year's. Yeah, I, I didn't even see florists having them out for sale. Maybe next week or the, the following week, they might have, somebody might have one or two that they had some, that purchased some narcissus bought from some nursery someplace, but are certainly not on display, not like other years. I do see some water chestnut, fresh ones, at Sanchong on Hotel. So Sanchong has uh, a lot of good stuff, but not as big a display like before. What about all the decorations that you would normally see? You have to go to Guanhua. Guanhua is the one on the corner of uh, North King and Manakia, the first store with all the nice statues and stuff. She has the biggest inventory of Chinese New Year good luck stuff, like from hanging good luck charms, keychain stuff, and red banners, you know, for like good luck letters, couplets. So normally you would see more, though, out there at this time? Yeah. I would see like a lot of red envelopes called Hong Bao. So the red envelopes are given out to all the children and adult children who are not married. And it's to to call the good luck money. So good luck money is given out to kids. And then kids would ask for blessings on Chinese New Year Day. And then they would kneel and give tea to their parents and to the elders. And in return, they get money packages. So you can go to like Hawaiian Bank, Bank Hawaii, Hawaiian National. They would give out uh, red envelopes for you so that you can put money in there for your kids. So that's for Chinese New Year. And then Chinese New Year starts on... February the 12th, and it lasts for like 15, 16 days. So it, it depends like on the new moon. It's the first day of Chinese New Year, and it finishes when you get the full moon on the 15th of the lunar new year. But all the indications are now, though, it's going to be a much more quiet Chinese New very Year. Very subdued and very sparse. Normally, family would go out and buy ingredients, like maybe 30, 40 types of ingredients to make the chai. And interestingly, I found in Hawaii, we have the oldest chai recipe coming from Chongsan people. They still use a lot of stuff in their chai, and it takes like three or four days to prepare this part of chai because there's so many ingredients to soak, wash, cut, you know, and then it's totally vegetarian. It's called mang food. So they try to get as many ingredients it's there for this power dish, and it has to symbolize good luck, good fortune, good wealth, good health and everything that the earth has to offer you. So are there enough of those ingredients out there in the yeah. stores? you can go to Bowa, Sanchong, 
and they have all of those ingredients. So you're going to have like red dates, fungus, you have golden needles. Golden needles are actually lotus flowers called lotus buds. Then you have lotus roots. So all the all the lucky vegetables. And then you need to have like to to pinin. Pinin means uh, to wish your family and friends happy new year. And then the tradition is you you always have two oranges or two tangerines, and then uh, lucky candy, and then uh, a red packet of money, like maybe two dollars in there, five dollars, ten dollars. And then you you say you wish the other party. Happy New Year, and then they in return wish you Happy New Year. So there's an exchange of oranges, and oranges symbolizes gold. It say come, come is gold. So you exchange gold, exchange money, and red color is good luck, right? Auspicious. So these are all the symbolism all day long. They're doing it, and then the the very important dinner is the New Year's Eve dinner called the reunion dinner, and every family member will be in attendance. And they wait for everybody to be together to have that dinner. And then usually they will serve all as many as food as they can put on the table. And then you usually have uh, little mochi balls to bring the family together, stick together, you know, mochi. Are the families going to be getting together like that, big families or just smaller groups? Oh, yeah. Like now with COVID, I think people are going to be separating unless the immediate family. So that kind of huge family party is not going to happen unless they have a huge yard and they could put out different tables, you know, or they come in different days just to have that. And uh, so I think it's harder for families to even get families together. Just like when we have Thanksgiving, a lot of people are not getting together. From the perspective of the business community there, then a lot more subdued. That's really like people just trying to survive. Like today I was at lunch. We were the only customer, you know. Most places I go to lunch that may be lucky you got five tables or four. And then if you see four tables in there, you don't want to walk in, right? Because you don't want to be in a crowded place. So that's part of the protocol now. If I see a, a restaurant that's kind of like a, a bunch of people in there, I don't want to go in. So so like most times, if there's only one or two or three tables in a whole restaurant, uh, then people go in. So the takeout business is still fairly good. Dining, not so good. Like, one of my favorite restaurants, Little Village Nuda House, they haven't opened for dining since March. They do a takeout, and so they have a lot of, like, delivery and stuff like that. Papa's on Hotel Street doesn't have sit-in. They used to do a roaring lunch dinner. And then the one next to Lynn's Flower Shop, the uh, Japanese uh, sushi place, they don't do any sit-in. So they said to me, actually, they do better at takeout. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have to hire a waitress. You don't have to clean tables. So they do take out and they say they're doing well. And also, people buy new clothes. Now, Chinese right. New Year, you cannot wear old clothes on the first day. New shoes, new clothes, and new hairdo. <laughs> you cannot have old hair. So all the, all the ladies are lined up to go perm their hair, cut their hair. So salons are busy, okay? And then clothing, you've got to have set of new clothes for Chinese New Year. Right. So yeah. maybe maybe some folks are still going to hold to those traditions. Oh, they it, have to. Yeah, they but it's to going to be a lot more scaled down than we're, yeah, we're used yeah. to seeing. So like you run in and buy something and run out. I'm sorry, you, you had mentioned also that uh, this is going to be the first time in, what, more than 50 years since we're not having the... 56 years that we do not have any Choi Ching. Choi Ching is the one week on a Friday before Chinese New Year. And uh, it's so nice. People come down, you know, after work, and then and they visit the society houses. Right. Big and firecrackers string out from the second store. So normally the lions would go a shop to shop in Chinatown, yeah. but that's not going to happen. Yeah, actually, there are actually 10 lion dance groups, and they then have a big meeting, and they split and say, okay, I'm going to do this street, you do that street, I do that street. So they, they parcel out the groups so that, you know, it's not like two lions going to the same shop. Because with lion dancing, it's kind of uh, labor-intensive, and then they also have to give a packet there, money packet. Mm-hmm. So the shops or the offices only can have one one group to come. So that's right. how they organize it. And then you mentioned that some business, though, can go directly, but it's just far more scaled yeah, down. You can, yeah, you can, you can hire mm-hmm. and make reservation with a lion dance group and say, okay, I want to hire your group to mm-hmm. do this from when and when, you know, and they come out if they can uh, right. spare the people. 
your thoughts as far as what to look forward to in uh, the new year? I think people are just have to be very cautious, wear your mask and wash your hands and just try to, try to social distance and still try and conduct business in a practical way. And I think more, more likely it's going to be smaller family groups or take turns, just hosting small groups. And then just to probably do all the stuff virtual, Zoom meetings and mm-hmm. Zoom, Zoom celebrations, and then to buy important symbolic stuff for the house. Oh, by the way, you got to clean your house <laughs> before Chinese New Year. <laughs> okay. No, no sweeping on the first day of Chinese New Year because it's sweep away all the luck. Okay. So don't even show a broom around the house on the first day of Chinese New Year. <laughs> you have to remember you that. You got to clean. Yeah, you, you remember that, like Grandma tells you. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got to clean and wipe down everything so that everything is fresh. It's like starting from new. Starting from new, that was Shulan Schubert Kwok, who was with the Chinatown Community and Business Association. She was talking a much more about a much more subdued celebration of the Chinese Lunar Year. No parades, no block parties. 2021 is the year of the ox. It lands on Friday, February 12th. Last year, the year of the rat was one full of change and anxiety. The ox represents stability and strength and hard work. Peng Hee Fat Choi. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we're mixing up a little fruit salad. Hawaii offers so many delicious fruits to choose from, but you probably already know that a few of the fruits that are grown here are native. Aside from the endemic uh, akala and ohelo berries, nearly every fruit in Hawaii was introduced by settlers at some point. Noni, mountain apple, and banana were all canoe plants brought by Polynesian voyagers and have been cultivated in Hawaii for hundreds of years. But many more fruits only arrived in the islands recently, within the past 200 years, including fan favorites like lily koi, pineapple, strawberry, guava, and jaboticaba. So for today's quiz, we want to know which of these fruits came to the islands first. Was it lily koi, pineapple, strawberry guava, or jaboticaba? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nairithawaii.com. Fifty years ago, entrepreneur and restaurateur Hiroaki Rocky Aoki opened Benihana in Waikiki's Hilton Hawaiian Village. It was one of the first in the chain that now spans 76 locations around the globe. Behind the scenes, management of the Hawaii restaurant has gone through twists and turns. When Rocky died in 2008, an ugly legal fight ensued over his state with a reported $35 million trust at stake. Involved in that beef were Rocky's third wife, Keiko Ono Aoki, and his seven children, which include uh, the DJ Steve Aoki and model Devin Aoki. In 2018, the Waikiki Benihana was rebranded as Rocky Japanese Steak Teppan Restaurant. And while it was still a teppanyaki restaurant, it sold dishes like hamburgers and loco moco. Now, the trust battle has been resolved, and Rocky's at the Hilton Hawaiian Village is under new management with one of his children. Kevin Aoki is a restaurateur, and he runs several Oahu restaurants. 
uh, Doraku Sushi and Izakaya, Blue Tree Cafe, 1938 Indochine, and Ching Mu Noodles. Earlier this month, he spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai about the history of this particular restaurant and what it means to him and his family. My dad started Benihana's in 1964. He was an Olympic wrestler and um, came to wrestle in the United States in 1960 and then loved this country and decided to stay here. Sixty-four, he opened a restaurant in New York City, um, which made it really popular in, um, in, 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 in the city. It was like the, the Novo of the day, back in the day. And he got a call from Baron Hilton. Um, and, you know, my dad probably knew how to speak five words of English. But he, he took a flight to Chicago, and, you know, Baron was uh, in his tall building. I think it was like the tallest building in Chicago at the time. Um, and my dad, you know, went up the elevator, and he sat, you know, with this icon, Baron Hilton, and Baron's like, I want you to open a restaurant here in Chicago. And my dad's like, here on this top floor? He's like, yes, up top of my building. And my dad's like, bad location. <laughs> oh, my God, this guy, you know, he's disagreeing with me. So a, a few months later, Baron Hilton calls my father up, and he's like, I have the perfect location for you, and it's in Hawaii at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. And my dad was intrigued. It was tropical land. He was in New York City for many years. He took a flight with my mother to Hawaii, checked out the location. We opened the restaurant in 1971. So he signed the lease, and in 1971, he started his relationship with the Hilton organization. And it was this third market. He went from New York to Chicago to Hawaii then to California. So it was like right in the time of when he was really growing his restaurant from a small mom-and-pop operator to growing it nationwide. So I understood uh, understand that uh, when you were uh, a teenager that you, st- you were working here as well. Yeah, when my dad, you know, my dad has uh, seven kids. During the summertime, he would always take us on a trip to Hawaii. And my dad wanted me to start to work. So older means when I got to about age uh, 13, 14 years old, my dad was like, you've got to start work. You've got to learn this business. So since I was 13 or 14, I st- every summer I worked at Benihana Restaurant, including the one in the Hilton Hawaiian Village. So I would, you know, seat customers. I would wash dishes. I, you know, I even cooked a few tables. Um, I worked in the kitchen, learned everything, um, you know, how, you know, training of the chefs and the importance of what makes Benihana, Benihana. As I became the manager of the Hilton, Benihana, Stephen would come because Stephen was 10 years younger than me. So in the summertime, he would come and work at the Hilton and I would put him through the same training that my father put me through. And also my other brother, Kyle, came as well. Okay, so definitely a family affair uh, down here at uh, Waikiki. It definitely is. I mean, it was a special restaurant to my dad. And interestingly enough, you know, as he grew his restaurant empire from having a restaurant in New York all the way to having 120 restaurants, he went public and he kept the restaurants that was really meaningful to him. And he didn't put the restaurant in the Hilton in the public company. So he's always owned this restaurant personally, never merged it with a public company. So when he passed away, he had owned this restaurant outright and left it in the family trust. When your father passed away, uh, the management of this restaurant uh, went to your stepmother. Can you talk about that, going from that management to Aoki Group today? Sure. So my dad passed away in 2008. And at the time, you know, he was married, uh, his third wife, and um, there was some conflict between his third wife and his children. We, we had some issues of, you know, running the company and inheritance of my dad's will. And, you know, my, my dad had cancer. He had cancer uh, was like three or four years prior to his death. And um, he decided, you know, just to have uh, his last wife, the executor of his will when he passed away. Since I was involved in this whole thing, my dad always talked to me. He's like, look, 
She's going to take care of the kids. She's going to take care of everybody. Don't worry about it. And when he, he was always concerned about his his uh, seven children. But when he passed away, Keiko had taken over the trust, um, and she had taken over management of all my dad's assets that were in the in the family trust. So fast forward 10 years later, the judge had asked her to step down as the trustee uh, because some of the, you know, uh, the family was, was feeling that the, she wasn't acting on the best interests of the trust. So she had stepped down from the trust and she had appointed a trust that was recommended by the courts and her attorneys to manage the, the, the operations. Recently, that trustee felt uncomfortable having her run the restaurant and the company and asked her to step down as the manager and president of Benihana Protective Trust or Benihana of Tokyo. And the trustee had appointed James Bailey, Devin's husband, to look after the affairs. And James and the trustee decided to ask me to take over, you know, the restaurant in Hawaii. And when, you know, it was brought to my attention, I was just thrilled because I know that restaurant very well. In fact, there's about 60 to 70 employees in that restaurant, and I would say maybe 20 of them have been working for us for over 30-plus years in that restaurant. So I know them all very well. I know how that restaurant runs. I really I really understand what makes teppanyaki teppanyaki. And I took it over, I think, around December 10th and, you know, jumped in uh, with the team. I rehired the people that were there. We cleaned up the restaurant because um, it's an old restaurant. It's been there for, you know, close to 50 years at the time. So we went in the restaurant. We cleaned it up, spent day and night doing that. Um, and then we, you know, launched it open uh, December 15th. And from, from the day one, it, it, was, it did well. Uh, Hilton opened up as well, and they had like a 3% occupancy. Um, they only had two restaurants open, so we were able to have enough customers to, to pay the income for the salaries and the food costs. And uh, we've been open now for three weeks, and the numbers are higher than I expected. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, I know it's been uh, a pretty tough year for the restaurant industry, and Aoki Group also manages Blue Tree Cafe, Doraku Sushi, uh King Mio in uh, 1938 into China. So, uh, and I understand those last two restaurants were burglarized. And with everything on top of the pandemic, how are you faring during this really challenging uh, past few months? I opened my company after my dad passed away because I had to start my own restaurants and move on with my life. Um, so that whole challenge up till now, it's been a fighting, struggling challenging time to succeed in this business from one restaurant to another to open a second one and grow organically to where I'm at now. So, you know, this pandemic, though it's kind of like an external situation that happened, which, you know, I have really not that much control over it, but I can, I have control over what I can do within the restaurant. And um, I just took that fighting spirit that my dad instilled in me and uh, every chance I can open, I opened. The governor says to shut down. I shut down, but I didn't stop. I, you know, when I was had to shut down, I brought a crew in, cleaned the restaurant up, made, you know, you know, with the idea of wowing the customer when we open, um, and I did that for each of my operations. So, my restaurant in Capulani, the Doraku there. During the shutdown, I beautified the restaurant. Same with what I did that same thing with in Waikiki, and the craziest thing is you're talking about my other. Two restaurants that I just opened, 1938 Indochine and Chingmu, they finished construction right as the pandemic was starting. That alone was challenging because I've never opened a 1938 before, and it was a new brand, new concept. I had hired a chef from from France to help me with the menu. Um, he was a Vietnamese chef from France that opened Indochine in New York City. That kind of inspired me to open this one. So I went to France, found this chef that opened Indochine in New York City. I worked with him to put the menu together here. Pandemic hit. I couldn't bring that chef here. So I rallied all the chefs I can locally. I found a great Vietnamese chef from downtown. 
uh, Laotian chef and a Thai chef, and we just sort of banged our heads together and came up with this menu. Um, and it was challenging, but we opened up, and um, it's, you know, I'm glad that the community has come in and checked checked out our restaurant. And I think during the pandemic, it's all about the community. You know, they they've been supporting us with takeout and delivery. They've been supporting us when when they can dine in, and um, I gotta really thank the community for coming in and supporting our restaurants when there's you know many other restaurants that can choose. Um, in fact, our restaurant in, um, on Capulani, you know, with takeout and delivery, with the dining, um, and we expanded the outside seating. Our sales are almost the sales that we did last year on Capulani. Um, Waikiki were were you know about 80 percent there, and in 1938, you know, we did get burglarized there. I put a really good security system in the cameras. We do have some leads on who did it, but again, you know, it's fighting to to stay alive and and while the customer as much as you can. The Rocky uh, Japanese Steak Tepon Restaurant. Uh, I know that location in Benihai. It's going to be 50 years. What are you planning for this year, and what are you looking forward to? Um, well, you know, it used to be called Benihana's, and they changed the name to Rocky's about two years ago. And what happened was is. You know, after my father passed away, the the um, company decided to sell. It was a public company, and my stepmother controlled like twenty some percent of the company. Uh, but they decided to sell it to a to a hedge fund, um, Angela Gordon, in New York City. We had an exclusive use of the trade name in here in Hawaii. You know, my stepmother has created a bad relationship with the um, parent company, and the parent company had asked the courts to remove her use of the name here in Hawaii. So she lost that case, and, she, and we had to change the name to Rockies, which was kind of fitting because people come to Benihana's, and they know my father, Rocky Aoki. They know that he started it, and he was an amazing marketing guy. But one of the reasons why they asked her to pull the name is because she was diversifying the menu to to sell like um, Hawaiian local moko on a tepanyaki. Um, she was serving hamburgers. She was doing things that were, in her mind, you know, maybe attracting a different customer base. I, I'm not exactly sure why she was doing that. But what I want to do when I take over this restaurant is to go back to the basics of what my dad was, when my dad brought to this country when he was bringing in tepanyaki cuisine. And the funny thing is when my dad brought teppanyaki to the America, it was back in the early 60s when there was a lot of Asian um, uh, resentment towards Japanese food and, and Japan. And my dad was thinking, okay, I, I have to serve American favorites with the Japanese flair. So he served steak, chicken, and shrimp, and he cooked it instead of, you know, what Japanese food is known for is, uh, at the time was just you know, raw fish, tempura, things like that. So he, he took American favorites and, you know, created, you know, a Japanese recipe, you know, basically put soy sauce <laughs> on, the, on American favorites and uh, created Benihana's. But what I want to do today is take that idea of teppanyaki that my, my, my father brought in, which is, you know, American favorites with entertainment, you know, with the chef entertaining the customers so you're walking out, eating, and getting entertained at the same time. So what I'm going to do now to make it relevant to the audience that you know is, I guess, the millennials or the next generation coming up, they want more choices. So I'm going to I'm going to have um, a section called add-ons on the menu, where we're going to have choices instead of steak, chicken, and shrimp. They can order that as they normally do, but they can also order. Brussels sprouts, asparagus, unigi mushrooms, or even chicken parts like chicken livers, chicken hearts, and, you know, like expand on the beef because uh, it's really a Japanese steakhouse with well, beef tongue, which is amazing on the teppanyaki table. We're going to expand it to like having A5 steak on there. We're going to expand it to have like uh, like ribeye instead of just the New York strip loin. So we're going to offer um, a little bit more. Food items 
to give uh, people more choices. I call it Inaka-style dining because uh, Inaka means countryside in Japan. So really, you know, make the restaurant feel like you're going into the countryside and, and eating comfort food. And that was Kevin Aoki of Aoki Group, which has taken over management of Rocky Japanese Steak Teppan Restaurant in Waikiki. It was previously known as Benihana. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, there are very few universal disgusts. Every person finds fecal material something they want to stay away from. Disgust has served us well from an evolutionary standpoint, but is it holding us back from solutions that might improve the environment, the economy, even our health? Just try them. They're not as disgusting as they look. The downside of disgust. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Honolulu Civil Beat has long advocated for the release of records of police officers who have been disciplined. Today, reporter Blaze Level has a story about the latest development in our segment we call our Reality Check. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me back. So your story uh, came out of a report that's hot off the presses. Yes. So every year, all four county police departments have to submit um, disciplinary reports to the legislature this was from a law passed in the 1990s, and we can get into that a bit. But HPDs had their up on has theirs up on the website yesterday, and like we do every year, we take a look at that and see you know what all uh, these few police officers in the department who are disciplined. You know, we want to understand what they were disciplined for. Uh, in the past, the unions tried to argue that you know um, you don't need so many details, you don't need the names of these officers. A lot of it's things like, you know, missing paperwork, not shining your buttons was one thing that Sopo raised in the 90s. But, you know, when we go through these reports, it's a lot more than not shining your buttons or polishing your shoes. There's lots of cases on abuse, assault, abuse of a family member. One unnamed officer in this report was, in fact, fired for, the department says, unnecessary force, and it caused bodily injury to the arrest. So there's some pretty, you know, serious cases of misconduct in these reports that the department's trying to highlight. And the union has, you know, kind of fought, right, the uh, release of the names of these officers. Yes. So it, it all stems um, from this case in the 90s. Uh, and the fight actually started with some UH students who were trying to get uh, officers' disciplinary records. And they were taken to court. Uh, I believe they won in court, but the union then went over to the legislature and got an exemption uh, to Hawaii's public records law that for the last 25 years basically shielded uh, instances of officer misconduct from public scrutiny. The public could, but they had a really hard time getting access to those kinds of records. Last year, the legislature passed Act 47, and that removed that exemption. Um, so treating police officers like any other state employee, like teachers, uh, like janitors, like state sheriffs, and most other law enforcement officers in the state in which the public can request, um, you know, a, a, a disciplinary report for a specific officer, and they should be able to obtain that. The other thing that that act also did, it added the names of disciplined officers onto these annual reports um, that are given to the legislature, so that's providing the public a little bit more insight into who exactly is being disciplined. Now, we've uh, been watching the news, you know, with the scandal with the police chief, uh, Lubike Aloha, and, you know, there have been some notable names, but uh, who else has popped up on this list? You're right. A, a lot of names attached to the Kealoha case uh, have come up, um, you know, and, and they're listed in the in the report. There's officers, uh, they're investigated for conspiracy, um, 
and obstruction of justice, and those are related to the Kailahas. You know, there's also a few others who have uh, notable news coverage in the last couple of years, an officer who was accused of serving his girlfriend, I think, to the ground um, at the airport. Uh, and there's actually one we caught about a dozen or so officers no one really knew about until yesterday. HPD tells me that they were caught up in two investigations the department conducted into officers tampering with records related to uh, DUI roadblocks and a federal grant. So we, we weren't able to get too much more information other than that, but the, those are cases that haven't been reported and that they haven't been out there you know, in, in the public until these reports come out. It kind of speaks to why you know these things and uh, government agencies giving the public a little insight into what they're doing is so important for transparency. And so uh, there's still some uh, legal wrangling uh, that's underway, uh, and uh, uh, I believe uh, Shopo, I think, filed against all the counties, right? So everybody's going to get their day in court to go back over this issue? That's right. So Shopo, that's the state uh, police union. They, in November, they filed suit uh, in all four counties to try to stop the release of these names. But none of the judges in those cases have given an injunction. So so in other words, they haven't stopped the law. So mm. what the county police departments are all doing uh, is they're releasing the names as they, um, you, know, you know, according to the law. One issue they're still trying to sort out, though, is uh, is how many of those names should come out. It has a lot to do with this complicated arbitration process, and they're going to be arguing that in March. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Blaze Lovell with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. 2021 is shaping up to be a big year for Mars. HPR's Dave Lawrence sits down with, uh, he's, he sits down with astronomer Christopher Phillips, who highlights exciting research underway on the Red Planet. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet. And as usual, we are so fortunate to have a guide through it with the astronomer Christopher Phillips and another Stargazer report here. We've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. This week's Stargazers, look out for Mars in the south at 6 p.m. It will be visible till around midnight when it will set in the west. The moon this week is waning, and so it will become less intrusive in our skies as the week goes on. And we are headed back to one of our favorite places to journey to on Stargazer, the red planet. What do you have for us this week, Christopher? Yes, Mars is going to be big news in 2021 with a new rover on the way and a plethora of science craft already in orbit or on the surface. Data from earlier missions, such as that from the Curiosity rover, is still being analyzed, and planetary scientists have drawn stunning comparisons between the ancient Martian environment and that of present-day Earth. One such example is that of Gale Crater, which in ancient times bore a striking resemblance to modern-day Iceland. And that means cold and dry? Exactly. But not so cold that liquid water was frozen into ice. In fact, the crater is thought to have been home to an ancient lake, as suggested by the geology there. But not home to any reindeer, which is another Iceland <laughs> thing. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it's more evidence that two planets were quite similar in ancient times. Very much alike, but only for a period of time. Mars underwent a series of drastic changes that led to it becoming the frozen, arid world that we know today. And how about the volcanic activity there in the past? Well, Mars was extremely active in the past, and extinct volcanoes can be seen all over the Martian surface. The most famous of these is, of course, Olympus Mons, which is essentially a super-sized version of Mauna Loa, and three times the height of Mount Everest. And we often hear a lot of different versions of what Mars was like a long time ago. Give us your interpretation. Well, there are two main schools of thought, those that think it was cold and dry and those that think it was warm and wet. The reality is probably somewhere in between. Hopefully, the incoming rover, Perseverance, will shed some more light on this when it arrives on Mars in 17 days. We're hoping for a smooth and safe landing for all the equipment and an update from you here on Stargazer. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. 
You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. today's quiz, we ask which fruit, lily koi, pineapple, strawberry guava, or jaboticaba, was brought to the islands first. We don't know the exact date that jaboticaba first made it to Hawaii, but scientists suspect that it was in the early 1900s, based on the age of our oldest trees. Purple passion fruit seeds were brought from Australia in 1880 and planted in East Maui in lily koi gulch. The name lily koi stuck with the tangy fruit. Strawberry guava is native to Brazil and came to Hawaii in 1825 as an ornamental tree. It has since taken over large swaths of our forest. And before all these transplants arrived, Don Francisco de Paula y Marin, a Spanish advisor to King Kamehameha, brought pineapple to Hawaii in 1813. Something of a fruit fanatic, Don Francisco is also credited with the first mango, the first grape orange and papaya cultivation here in the islands. Congratulations to our uh, winner, Derek Kiabu of Hilo. You got it right. Uh, Derek is a farmer who, who grows tropical fruits and mac nuts. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. While 2020 was a year of earth-shattering consequences for the filmmaking industry, a number of locally produced films were still able to make a splash, both here in Hawaii and on the national award circuit. Today we hear from one such local filmmaker whose work is being celebrated at the Sundance Film Festival. Christopher Makoto Yogi's new film, I Was a Symbol Man, deals with the complex issues of identity and sense of place in an ever-changing Hawaii. He shared his thoughts about the film with the conversation's producer, Harrison Patino. The film, I Was a Simple Man, is a story of an old Japanese man who's living in the countryside on Oahu and who's on his deathbed and visited by the ghosts of his past. So it's a film about um, in, uh, a man in Hawaii at the end of his life sort of facing his mortality and face, looking back on the life that he's lived. Um, it was inspired in, for me by my personal experience with death in the family. There's a period in my life where I was quickly losing a lot of family members, and it was a very disorienting time. And just the the experience of being in the room with someone who's um, at the edge of their life, someone who's passing over, was just an experience that really stayed with me. It was one that I found very, um, very unsettling, uh, you know, kind of terrifying. Um, but at the same at the same time, like now looking back on it, it was um, something very beautiful to witness. Um, and so I really just wanted to make a film that captured that feeling of being in the room with someone who's passing on, that sort of haunting, beautiful um, experience that I that I felt in those rooms when my family members were passing away. Now, your film, I Was a Simple Man, will be debuting at the Sundance Film Festival. So what's it like to represent Hawaii through film to a global audience? Oh, I mean, it's it's such an incredible opportunity. My work for the past 10 years has been about really exploring um, my personal experiences in Hawaii, you know, um, my memories of home, my feelings of home, um, just uh, trying to portray um, home in a way that feels honest, in a way that feels lived in, feels tactile, specific. All of these things are very, very um, important to me. And to be able to then show this vision of Hawaii to the world is, um, is just a huge, huge, um, uh, I'm just, I just feel such gratitude to have the opportunity Everybody knows the sort of um, postcard image of Hawaii, but then to then supplement that with something that's personal, that's um, really lived in, um, I think people will get a lot out of that. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. Hollywood portrayals tend to use Hawaii more as a backdrop than as a living, breathing place. For you, is depicting Hawaii in an authentic way, is that really important as a filmmaker? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm of the sort of, um, belief that there there isn't really one, you know one specific monolithic image of 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 Hawaii. Like it's it's you know it's diverse. It's 
complicated. It's um, um, everyone sort of everyone. There's so many different stories, so many different cultures, so many different histories, and there's so there's such a rich um, culture and history to explore. And so I feel like what I'm trying to add is just add my personal take on what I what, what I feel Hawaii means to me, um, and that that I think is is really cool to be able to add that to the um, to the conversation. Um, so that it's not just like you said. Um, the sort of backdrop, postcard, um, sort of luxury tourism um, commercial uh, that 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 everyone sort of knows, but something that's um, something that's again more more honest to my experience. And you know, there's so many different filmmakers working um, in Hawaii now that it's this really exciting time because it's so um, it's so varied the work. It's so um, everyone is sort of telling their own story. And to see it all together then gives like this very multidimensional sort of vision um, of home that's very beautiful. So as with all things these days, COVID-19 had an effect on the making of this film. Can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic impacted the filmmaking process? Yeah, we um, luckily we shot the film in 2019. So we shot in the summer of 2019. By the time 2020 rolled around, we had the film in the can, which, which is... Um, you know, I, I have friends who were in, in the middle of shooting or were just about to start shooting um, when everything locked down. And I, I really feel I really feel for them. I mean, that, that must have been a tough experience. But luckily, we, we did have the film in the can. So what it did affect was our post-production process. And so because of COVID, um, we had to do a lot of the work that would normally be done in person. We had to do it remotely. Um, so, for example, we had to do our sound mix remotely. We had to do some dialogue recording remotely. We had to do color correction remotely. Um, and all of these things were tough because usually with, say, with color correction, you're sitting in a room in a theater, you're looking at the colorist really doing their work to change the color and you're kind of working in real time. Whereas because of the remote nature of the working, I was, you know, we were looking at iPads and kind of talking on the phone and you're kind of wondering, am I looking, is, is what the color I'm looking at exactly the color you're looking at? You know, it's like there's this little disconnect that makes it a little, little bit tricky. Um, but we got through it. Um, the only thing is that it just took much longer than it normally would. So, some, you know, something that probably would have taken a month takes maybe um, three times or four times as long. Now, you've said that you hope this film allows for self-reflection. The topic of introspection is a common thread in your films. Can you explain that thread and what it means to you? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that the films that have really moved me over the course of my life the films that have really, you know, made me want to make films, the, the, the ones that have really changed how I view the world were the ones that forced me to look inside myself or forced me or asked of me to put a little bit, bring a little bit of myself to, to the film and sort of meet the film halfway so that it's almost as if I'm, I'm in dialogue with the film as opposed to um, just the film is telling me a story and I'm kind of just a passive observer, just letting the story wash over me. And so these, these kind of cinematic works that encourage a dialogue are really the films that, um, you know, the ones that have stayed with me over the years. And so I'm always trying to make, make work that does the same, um, that asks of the audience to bring a little bit of themselves and meet the film halfway to do a little bit of, a little bit, bit of work, I guess, while they're watching the film, which maybe doesn't sound like the most fun, but I think, Ultimately, you know, using the cinema space as one in which people can have a transformational experience, have a experience that changes the way they view the world. Um, I think that's invaluable, and so um, it's it's what we strive for when we're making when we're making movies. Now, another common thread in your films is this examination of identity, and identity is always a complex topic in Hawaii. Is identity an important part of what you want to interrogate or maybe explore as a filmmaker? You know, I don't, I don't think that's something that maybe I know consciously. But now that you say it, I can see what you're, I can see what you're saying. Um, I think that search for meaning um, is definitely something that is important to me as, as just a person, a human existing in the world. I'm someone who's very much a searcher, someone who's very much trying to look within myself to find, to find greater meaning. Um, and so I think a lot of that. Um, personal sort of journey gets, um, you know, gets gets in the film is imbued with that part of my personality. I think, um, as a as far as identity, I'm I'm not totally sure, but I do know that um, uh, I do know that there's just a I, I, the best films have a very um, I think the, have a specificity of 
culture, have a specificity of place. And so I'm always trying to ground ground the films in something that's very specific to the place or specific to the characters and who they are. Um, and I think that's where maybe um, the sort of um, maybe the the sort of cultural identity things come through. But I'm not I'm not totally sure. It's um, something I'll think about. Well, maybe the most important question for our audience is one. How can people watch the film? And two, what is it you hope that audiences will walk away from after watching this film? The film is screening um, virtually. Sundance is virtual this year, which is um, which is great. I mean, just the ability for people from all over the country to be able to, you know, quote unquote, attend Sundance and watch these films that you know in regular years would only be available to a select few people who could afford a ticket to go to Park City, afford to get up say one of these expensive um uh lodgings um and but now it's you know for um a price of a movie ticket anybody can watch these premieres beyond that um the film will then be touring other film festivals i'm looking forward to the day that i can bring the film home and watch it um with audiences at home with uh, the people who helped make the film that's going to be a very very special day um, so um, fingers crossed that by the time we do that, um, you know, cinemas are open and we're able to watch it in a theater. That would be, you know, that's my dream right now. That's what I'm looking forward to. That was filmmaker Christopher Makotoyogi talking with The Conversation's Harrison Patino about his new film, I Was a Simple Man. It can be seen virtually at this year's Sundance Film Festival, but heads up, the festival only runs through tomorrow. Well, that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we explore what's on the horizon for homes that are still on cesspools. New laws to protect our drinking water and our oceans are on the horizon. We'd like to hear from you. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.